Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. As I'm speaking to you now, it is the afternoon of the 13th of February 2024. Israel is currently, as we speak, launching a deadly campaign of bombardment on the 1.7 million Palestinian refugees crammed into Rafah. This area had previously been declared a safe zone, and many people fled there as the vast majority of residential homes throughout Gaza were flattened. Palestinians already facing disease and starvation are now trying to survive the hell of renewed Israeli aggression. And even Joe Biden is making gestures towards the idea that some restraint on the part of Israel might be warranted. So, inevitably, there is a lot of discussion about whether or not Israel's campaign of violence against Gaza constitutes war crimes, whether or not a genocide is currently underway. It's a debate that has recently made its way to the ICJ, or International Courts of Justice, which saw South Africa bring a case against Israel. In a somewhat ambivalent ruling, the court found that there was a plausible possibility of a genocide occurring and that Israel should undertake steps to prevent it, but it stopped short of ruling that Israel should withdraw any military operation entirely. Against this backdrop, I sat down with legal scholar Robert Knox to talk about how international law works, its historic entanglement with capitalism and colonialism, and whether or not it can be a force for good in liberation struggles. Robert Knox is a senior lecturer in the law department at Liverpool University. We talked about Palestinian sovereignty, the justification of violence and the limits of legal thinking. Rob, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Elf. Thanks for having me. So precisely at this time of recording, there is a very, uh, very live, very violent situation happening in Rafa, and there have been sort of vague noises made towards the idea of... Um, prosecution of certain actors involved. The US is being a little ambivalent, maybe making some uh, noises to the to the effect that maybe not absolutely everyone should be slaughtered indiscriminately. Um, so the legal situation on the ground might stand to change in the next hour, two hours, 24 hours after uh, recording this. So I guess, is there anything we should be looking out for legally in terms of something that might change? I mean, look, I think in many respects, I think it's important to say that like what has changed is not legal. It's likely to be certain forms of political alignment. Mm. So legally, right, the situation remains very similar to how as it has been. The Israeli state has constructed an argument around the idea of the prevalence and kind of seeming continual presence of Hamas and the use and Hamas's use of civilian populations as human shields, and the Israeli state has a series of unconvincing arguments about how it's minimizing civilian casualties, and it uses these things in combination to engage in various attacks on civilians, but saying, well, we're targeting these people, the civilian deaths are, you know, collateral, incidental, accidental. We can believe or disbelieve what the Israeli state really thinks, but the Israeli state, as always, has a series of arguments trying to say how this is the case. Rafa seems to be particularly grim but in a sense it just replicates what's happened before which is the israeli state keeps on bombing areas driving people into new areas which they say is going to be safe and bombing them again this is this has been a repeating pattern what may have changed and you know we're we're we're, we're at the mercy of um of circumstances in this context is the combination of the particular forms of brutality of the israeli state and i think forms of of mobilization 
have put increased pressure upon various political actors in a sense which makes them perhaps more receptive at least to criticising the Israeli state somewhat. In Britain, we've already seen this, right? If you look at the shift in both the government and the Labour Party's response to the Israeli state, it has shifted pretty rapidly in a relatively short period of time, not least because claims to be able to control or limit the Israeli state seem to be kind of off, off the menu, right? So this is possibly one of the explanations for Biden becoming a little bit more strident, but we'll see what that stridency translates to in, in practice. I'm skeptical, to be honest. Um, right. And one reason I'm also skeptical is because, of course, it's not simply about supporting the Israeli state. It's also about what precedents do you set for what kind of military action you're going to use in the future and what arguments carry and don't carry. We've been hearing a lot of talk, obviously, in the last few months, the last um, 100 plus days of, of course, an appalling genocide that is being live streamed across the world. Very, very little in terms of uh, movement from the so-called international community. Perhaps we can come back to that phrasing in a bit to do anything about it. And actually, as we are recording, there is a siege, a bombing campaign on Rafa, which was a so-called designated safe zone. 1.7 million people uh, currently crammed into that area, uh, which is you know half the size of many sort of standard American airports, if you can envisage that. And um, Israel currently launching a bombing campaign against it. Um, this is after the ICJ ruling, uh, which recently came out. We will come back to that as well. But in the midst of all this, we are hearing a lot of talk about international law, whether or whether not Israel is violating this thing. So can you give us a bit of a rundown on what on earth we're talking about when we say international law? Like, what is that pointing at in terms of bodies, processes, that kind of thing. The thing that I would always say to people who don't get international law or haven't really studied it or thought about it before is that international law is superficially quite different from what we would think of in terms of a domestic legal system, because it's what we would call a, a decent, decentralized legal system. And by that, we mean that in the international arena, there is no single state, judiciary, police, etc., to make or enforce the law as we might think there is with a domestic legal system. Instead, the international arena in legal terms is understood as composed of sovereign states, and these sovereign states are understood to have no authority that stands over and above them, except insofar as they consent to it in some kind of manner. And what that means is that typically the kind of two key sources, and there are more sources of international law, are understood to be treaty and, and custom. Treaty is, as you'd imagine, like it's the agreements between states which then can like which will bind the states because they have agreed to it. Some people would liken it to a contract. Custom, which we will not talk about in huge amounts of detail because it is overly complicated and, and unnecessary, are the kind of general practices of states which over time and with kind of the intention of creating legal relationships can become binding upon those states. Now, a lot of what we're talking about in the context of um, of, the, of the war in Gaza is these two things in specific ways. So we'll often hear talk about the United Nations, and the United Nations is an international institution which is the, cre the creature of what we call a multilateral treaty. So mm -hmm. a, a treaty which, in this case, like all states in the world have agreed to, which on that basis creates those institutions. And a lot of international institutions and things that we think about as being kind of 
the, the central elements of international law are essentially these kind of institutions. They're agreement, they're, they're the product of multilateral agreements, such as the International Criminal Court, the World Trade Organization, all of these kind of things. And the UN is kind of like the crowning of that ascendancy. And then at the same time as that, we have international legal regimes, and let's say in this context, which are a mixture of custom and treaty, which would be the kind of law of armed conflict here, so international humanitarian law, the kind of law that regulates what states can do in armed conflict situations, who they can target, how, what level of force they can use, and the kind of law on the use of force, which itself is contained within the United Nations, which talks about when a state might be able to use military force against, against another state and in what context. So basically what we have is this decentralized legal system with a number of international legal institutions, which are usually created through treaty, and then this mixture of customary and treaty law, which is said to regulate states insofar as they have consented in some way to doing them. Could you give us a brief sort of fly-by-night timeline of, you know, big question I know, the development of the various institutions that we're talking about, the UN, the ICJ, the ICC, so when do these things come about and in response to what? Right, so I'll what I'll do is, is two separate timelines, if you like. I think this is the best way of doing it. One which is about basic international legal institutions and then one which was referring specifically to some of the stuff like regulating the law of war, right? So in the kind of like high colonial periods, you have various kind of ad hoc kind of bodies through which states, European states come together, none of which has any real legal force. We don't need to really talk about them. But what we do get to in the wake of the First World War is the first attempt at a, a proper international organization, which is the League of Nations. And the League of Nations is in part articulated in the context of the disturbances that the First World War throws up, such that a lot of people start thinking that we need ways to regulate um, the relationship between states so they don't go to war. There's talk about outlaw outlawing war. But also you have a series of like colonial tensions that emerge at the end of the First World War with the defeated powers. So the League is initially set up. And it is essentially a kind of, if you like, forerunner to the United Nations in which kind of independent sovereign nations and, and their dominions can, can come together and discuss issues of war and peace. At the same time, really importantly, alongside that aspect of the League, you also have the setting up of the so-called mandate system. And the mandate system is a system whereby the former, former colonial territories of the Ottoman Empire and, um, and, and Germany and the defeated powers are put under trusts or like administration by allied powers and they're ordered in terms of how advanced they are and these allied powers are there to watch over their well-being so it's a reproduction of a colonial system but with a possibility of independence for some states insofar as they are able to like uh, like reproduce european internal social norms and indeed as many of us will be aware i'm sure one of those mandates was palestine which was given as to Britain, and in a sense, many of the contemporary problems of Palestine today stem from the particular management of the mandate by Britain and the kind of promises that Britain made, in part because all of these mandates were still entwined with the politics of imperialism. In any case, the League ultimately is unable to do what is seen to be its job. It doesn't have teeth and enforcement powers. The United States never goes into it. And crucially, when it came to the crunch and... Um, Italy invaded what is now Ethiopia. 
the league did nothing. It couldn't do anything. They initially tried to do some sanctions. It didn't work. And this was seen as the kind of beginning of the end for the league because it was incapable, right, of dealing with this kind of aggressive war. But what we do see in this context is the beginning of institutionalization of certain things at an international level, but crucially, reproducing a lot of this imperial stuff. This then leads into, obviously, the Second World War. And at the end of the Second World War, what you do get is a flurry of international institution building. Now, in part, this is because like, of the kind of complete discrediting of colonialism, the kind of consolidation and rise of the Soviet bloc as a significant force, and the alliance between the Soviet bloc and the kind of European and American powers. So you get these things combined and with a kind of sense on some level that you need to effectively stop the recourse to war and you also need to coordinate the kind of the global system in this way. That leads to the founding of the United Nations as a kind of multilateral institution and in that context, the founding of the ICJ. Really importantly, at the same time as this, you also get the foundations of a number of international economic institutions, the so-called Bretton Woods institutions, like the IMF, the World Bank, and these are initially designed as ways of coordinating the global economy. These, in this period, in part because of the Cold War, because of an insurgent anti-colonial movement, international institutions become a significant terrain of struggle. And it's in this context that we get a series of General Assembly resolutions, which kind of go towards ending decolonization, towards like regulating war in greater depth. And you win, you see a series of victories throughout this period. This comes to a quite abrupt end in the 1970s, when the US essentially in part breaks the international legal economic system by going off of the gold standard. We don't need to go into that much deep about it. And this kind of gives rise to like the birth of neoliberalism. Now at this moment in the like mid to late 70s, there's a moment of profound social struggle where the third world movement seeks to use international institutions to push what they call a new international economic order, right? And their idea is that we're going to transform the global economy. This flounders essentially on the kind of industrial powers refusing this. And that's combined with the kind of decline in the Soviet Union, which means that by the end of this period, the UN kind of ceases to become this body. And instead, what you get in the wake of this is a proliferation in many respects of more individualistic things. This is when human rights becomes much more important as a language of people to talk about. It's where international criminal law comes to the fore in, in particular ways, and where you get the foundation of the International Criminal Court in the 1990s. So there's a kind of journey here mirroring different forms of political mobilization and action, which is then reflected in these international institutions and international legal arguments. Can you give us a sense of how um, in, say, a Marxist or left tradition, people begin to make sense of the history of these institutions uh, through imperialism and uh, through colonialism? So why states have um, arrived on these mechanisms in the first place? People on the left have not necessarily specifically elaborated their thoughts about law, let alone international law. Very frequently, we tend to default somewhat to a kind of like fairly neutral kind of just like law is a body of rules. Everyone needs a body of rules. And this is kind of, you can see this in the fact that if you read the works of, say, Marx and Engels, they don't reflect specifically on law. But it's important to say that there is a kind of body of thinking about law in general 
which is, I think, useful for us to understand before we think about international law specifically and its historical role that comes out of at least part of the Marxist tradition. And this is a kind of body of thinking very often associated with Yevgeny Pashikhanis, who was a kind of um, Marxist legal theorist in the Russian Revolution, which understand there to be a close structural connection between law and capitalism, or more specifically, law and commodity exchange. Now, the important starting point for this kind of position is to say, look, we frequently think that we can just collapse or equate all forms of rules into laws. But actually, in practice, we know that's not the case. We know that we have lots of different normative orders, rules-based orders, which we wouldn't call law, and it would be a mistake to think of as law. And so Pashukhanis' kind of central, kind of very theoretical but important point is to say, okay, well, what are the social and historical conditions in which rules are not just rules, they're not religious rules, they're not this rule, they're not that rule, but in fact, they take the form of law. And Pashukhanis links this to the commodity form and commodity exchange. And what he essentially says is, look, when we look at law as a kind of form of regulation, it presupposes essentially two parties endowed with and possessing rights in a form of like formal abstract equality. And for Pashukhanis, that emerges in the context of relationships between people who are engaged in commodity exchange, because every commodity, everyone in a, every party in a commodity exchange has to recognize the capacity of other people in that exchange to bear rights and therefore, in some sense, have formal equality. The importance of this is simply put that there is a structural link in this account between the social relations which will become capitalism and the emergence of law. And in particular, the argument goes, and I think actually when we reflect broadly on history, this kind of bears out, it's in moments of trade and exchange that we see kind of formal legal codes and systems spring up. Mm. And capitalism is essentially the first kind of social system in which law specifically plays such a key role. We've had law existing at margins of social structures at various points, but it's often entwined with other things. But capitalism, with its fixation on contracts, property and all of these kind of things is the system that brings law to the fore in a way that it has not hitherto been done. And that's one reason why, if you look to the history of bourgeois revolutions, let's say, they were very often done under the banner of the rights of man, mm -hmm. declarations of rights, etc., etc., etc. So that's the basic kind of setup. In terms of the context of international law, th th there's a complication, if you like. Essentially, what we first need to understand is that the spread of international legal relations is bound up very concretely and historically with the spread of capitalist social relations on the global stage, which makes sense from this perspective, right? So insofar as capitalists sought to kind of expand their social power globally, insofar as imperialism is given birth to, what we see is an extension of legal and juridical relations to the rest of the world in this kind of context. Very frequently, this was accompanied by, well, almost always, was accompanied by a language of racism, mm. whereby people who were not conforming to European social practices were in some sense understood as not being capable of qualifying as legal subjects. The idea of property is developed in part and in relation to indigenous people who are conceived of as not owning property and therefore not using land productively, therefore they are not capable of becoming legal subjects in this way. It's also the idea of property and contract in relation to slavery and racialized slaves as being, in some sense, outside of that order 
and therefore firming it up. Within the kernel of the law then is this constant drive towards, in forms of like racial and like capitalist logics, dispossess and then eventually assimilate people in particular ways. So in the kind of period of like high colonial expansion, you had a language of civilization, which essentially says, well, insofar as you were able to act in terms of reciprocity, in terms of participating in a market exchange, you will be capable of becoming a legal subject. But that undergirded and justified, when people weren't in that context, the taking of territory in various ways and forms of social transformation. So the kind of spread of international law as a kind of global system in this way, historically, is bound up very closely with colonialism, imperialism, and practices of racial and racialization. Of course, the crucial point here is that this is, in some sense, also offers an opportunity for racialized, oppressed people historically. And that's because the kind of promise, if you like, of the formal equality of the legal form would frequently cut against certain forms of open and direct imperial practices. So in the context of the movements towards decolonization, which also occur in the shadow of the Russian Revolution, which itself was challenging these things, you see a big push by the non-European colonized, but also Soviet world to push for forms of legal equality and the full inclusion of all peoples within the ambit of international law, right? And the kind of end point of this and the end point of a lot of sustained serious social struggle is at the close of the Second World War, you get the foundation of the United Nations. It's important to say that the United Nations still has a number of formal commitments to colonialism, which people don't realize at least initially, but during this period and during a period of sustained struggle by the Third World and the emergent Third World movement, and again, the Soviet world, you get a push towards essentially saying, well, international law aligns itself with a project of very limited decolonization in which what everyone gets is a juridical state form. Insofar as you have organized yourself in this manner, in a manner that is, of course, very compatible with a capitalist world system, you can get a set of formal rights and entitlements in this way. Historically, when you see the rollout of various forms of colonialism, say, uh, in the conquest of the west of the uh, United States of America. You see people, um, uh, colonizers specifically, making treaties with people whose land they want to steal, people whose um, resources they want to steal, people who they have no problem murdering. And um, it puts me in mind of almost the, the absurdity uh, of um, how Israel is trying to kind of wrangle legal justification when it seems like the the point of a gun, a big red button, it seems to be doing the work for it. So my question is, why do powerful states bother with the law? I think that's a really important question, and I'm really glad that you've brought it up. And I think it's something that actually it's very important for people to reckon with, which is that it's actually crucial to note that like, Imperial powers and all of these kind of things historically have not tended to conduct what they were doing in terms of lawlessness or in terms of being like, we don't care about the law, but indeed produce voluminous like legal justifications for what they do. To quickly say a, a little aside, but something I always think is really interesting, like in the, interesting, horrible, but interesting, mm -hmm. in the context of the, the, the torture that went on in Guantanamo Bay, this was not 
lawless, like secret legal memos, the torture memos, are commissioned painstakingly laying out the legal case for why it is that what would be happening wasn't torture, right? This was not needed. Like, this could have just all been covered up, but nonetheless, this happened. So there is something about international law which is crucial even to imperial states engaging in this in, in this kind of thing. Now, I think <clears throat> what we could do is unpack a number of different levels of, of justification for what, or explanation for why this happens. And I think that might illuminate something. Like on the basic level, if you accept, as I do, the idea of this kind of close structural link between capitalism, imperialism, and international law, in a sense, this just, it's almost not, optional, right? International law is the language through which capitalist states relate to one another in various ways. It is the way in which these, it is, it is just what it is, right? Like the very state form that we're talking about, which is central to this, is in some sense a creature of international law. So this is on some level the lingua franca, and we can kind of see why that would be structurally. The other, the second point about then, which is really important is, is that I think we sometimes make a bit of a mistake. So if we talk, talk about the context of um, the Western United States, of thinking that f forms of justification are always only addressed from the powerful to the powerless. Like very frequently, these powerful states are always in competition and relation to other powerful states, what in, you know, my tradition we might call inter-imperialist rivalry. And part of the point of what international legal arguments are doing in this context is taking that seriously, is to be like, okay, well, if there are these other interests which are also jostling in this way, in what way are we structuring our claims in such a way, both as to justify and structure the dispossession, murder, exploitation of these people, but at the same time, do that with a mind to other powers which are engaging in these kind of practices, excluding them. So another like classic example we might talk about is um, people often talk about the scramble for Africa and the kind of the Berlin conference, which is a, a, you know, a conference between the various imperial powers to divide up Africa amongst themselves. That is not simply about how they relate to Africans, it's how they relate to other European powers at the time <laughs> and the wars in which they were engaged in about territorial boundaries and delimitation. So there are these two big, I think, mm. structural things. Beyond that, of course, there is this argument around, which I think is important, but we need to be careful, around legitimacy. Like law in capitalist societies is a tool that is like very powerfully legitimating. It exerts a kind of sometimes almost like seemingly magic power on various people as a way of like, articulating and justifying your interests. And again, I think that is linked to this, this structural connection. It is a very effective way of recasting particular interests, particular positions into a kind of general universal language which will like cover these kind of things up. If we take, for instance, what's happening in the context of like Gaza, the Israeli state wants to recast what it is doing as a war of self-defense against an aggressor, partly to communicate with other states and to kind of gain their alliance, partly to justify and legitimize itself. And in this sense, right, it's very important for states to re-articulate their particular interests and their particular kind of practices in, in this way. So for me, it's this combination of, of all of these, these different elements, which kind of helps to explain why it is that states are engaged in this and in these practices. And I think a final thing that we might add, which I also think is important, is if we go back again to the kind of history of race and racialization, civilization and its association with international law, 
part of the mark of a civilized society was always the degree to which it could invoke the law as against lawless people elsewhere, right? And that's a powerful racialized legitimation in the context of contemporary imperialism. I mean, to take actually, again, the Gaza example, the Israeli state not only like uses the language of law in relation to itself, it argues that Hamas or the Palestinians more broadly are themselves abusing law or incapable of using it as part of its own tactic of delegitimizing and in some sense decivilizing them to be like, well, we know how to use international law. They do not. And interestingly, there are certain moments at which they can make that sound more plausible than other moments. Could you unpack that a little bit more for me? Because um, I think that's a really important thing to dig into, this kind of link between the um, creation of the concept of the savage or the uncivilized state and perhaps what we can think of as its modern evolution as the kind of rogue state or even the terrorist state and how that works in terms of producing the kind of dynamics that we're seeing on the ground today in terms of how... Um, Palestinians using violence is treated versus how Israelis using violence is treated. And I, in, even in that phrasing, I'm kind of dabbling on the edge of a false equivalency here, but maybe you can unpack that for us. But it's not you who's dabbling in the false equivalency. Right. The false equivalency is precisely implied by, well, I would say like the structure of the legal form, but the way in which this legal language mm. works, right? This is a slight diversion, but I think it's important to say it's very difficult for a law that is based on the sort of forms of abstract equality that we have to be like, well, this oppressed people using this form of violence is on its structural and fundamental terms different from this oppressive state using violence in this kind of way. It can, law finds it very difficult to make that kind of differentiation. There's a, a famous Lenin quote that I always like where he basically says, he's talking about Morocco and he's like, well, if, if Morocco like, you know, attacked Spain or France, it would be a just defensive war, irrespective of who struck first, because from a kind of analytical perspective and not a kind of juridical perspective, the social relations mm. are there, but the law is not very good at dealing with that. If you look at, say, like the development of the laws of war, well, the development of the laws of war up until the, like, the 1960s is high Europeans going to war with each other and a vision of war which almost necessarily discounts the experience of the wars in the colonies because the colonial people are not capable of like possessing a rationality to engage in war. Indeed, because of the centrality of this idea of specifically reciprocity, but reciprocity understood in kind of contractual terms, it was understood, well, there's no need for civilized powers to like hold back when they're attacking savages because savages are incapable of reciprocating and therefore you don't have to have any of these kind of rules. The whole set of legal arguments around the war on terror are structured around the idea that certain states are sensible enough to use certain legal arguments and others aren't. This is literally even repeated in the context of the United Nations, where you have the permanent five of the Security Council, who are basically the people that won World War II, and it kind of throws it in this way, just to then return to the specific context of Gaza. Many of the rules of war and the laws of armed conflict are developed in this historical European period, which envisages wars between relatively equal, technologically superior armies, and actually, a lot of the goal of this was simply, well, how do you make warfare more efficient? Even things that might seem on that basis like they are nice, 
can turn out to be not nice. There is a principle in international humanitarian law called the principle of distinction. And this means that your weapons need to be able to, in principle, distinguish between military and civilian personnel. Well, if you are people who have a lack of access to like high technology weaponry, how can you ever distinguish between these things, right? Mm. So the obvious example is in the context of like the 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 rockets that get that get launched by Hamas. These are not capable of distinguishing because they are unguided weapons, which means that these can be condemned in international legal terms. Now, fine, but then when the Israeli state uses far more powerful weapons, which can be guided though, mm. they now is like, well, they can distinguish. So now for those weapons, you have to go into this test of proportionality. So whereas the kind of weaponry which is much less destructive, but technologically less advanced, is just no, 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 the more destructive high-tech weaponry is subject to a highly contestable test in such a way as essentially different forms of violence are dealt with differently. And indeed, what you then get embedded precisely is a legitimation of the violence of the oppressor and the violence of the oppressed is automatically cast outside any possibility. It embeds technological advantage in a racialized way precisely because it was never understood as applying in this context. And there are a lot more kind of examples of that in the context of urban warfare that we could get into. You've mentioned the framework of war crimes being at least partially envisaged um, as a form of making war um, not more human, if we put it like that, but more efficient on the part of the war makers, the war mongers. Can you give us a sense of uh, what that looks like? Okay. So what I should say firstly is that a lot of this starts to take place through codification in the context of the 19th century. And this is when there's a shift, there's a shift towards like modern forms of war. And so this chivalry stuff seems to be dead. Now, the very significant thing that we can start with, and this will kind of lead into it, were like, actually, in some ways, there was an attempt to almost merge humanitarian concerns with these concerns of military necessity. Because the argument went, and this is like, the German word is Kreigreisen, like, you know, a quick war, is a more humane war. So the quicker you can get a war done, like the less people will die, the less suffering that, that will happen. And this becomes a crucial thing it's coming from the Germans in these negotiations at these various conferences to be like, well, military necessity, Craig's raison, will mean things will get more humane. So in the context of, say, the US Civil War, you have the Lieber Codes, and this is a kind of attempt to like make a negotiation between these between like, the, the kind of various parties in, in the US Civil War. And essentially they insist, oh, well, a short war is a better war. So actually bombardment and starvation of civilians in this context would be okay because of this. Now, what you see throughout a, these series of, of declarations is that often the language of humanitarianism is, like, is pushed aside in part because it's like, if you want to eliminate necessary suffering, it's better to just do things quickly. So then you get like the St. Petersburg Declaration, the Brussels Declaration, which kind of, again, affirm the necessity of military, of, of military necessity in the kind of like late 18, late 1800s. When you then get to like the 1900s and uh, the Hague rules, essentially they also once again make this qualification back to military necessity. What you start to get here is some of the limitations of certain 
certain techniques because they are understood as without military value. So asphyxiating gas, for instance, was understood as like actually, un, like the, the suffering was unnecessary. It wasn't actually quick enough. And also, frankly, the wind blew it back the other way. So they didn't really like that. And they start banning things in this kind of context, right? And what you see in the course of this, of the 1900s in the various hate conferences, is scaling down of what is what is going on. Now, World War One, as in some respects changes things, because this is the, the example of total war. And you do see this move towards like trying to be more restrictive, but states simply refuse to adopt these rules. And then in the context of the Second World War, where you get real total war, afterwards you get a, a series of moves and you get, for instance, very famously Nuremberg. But of course, Nuremberg, you know, the, the trial of the, the Nazis for war crimes, of course, is also understood as an imperial trial because the people that stood trial were the people that lost the war. So you get this idea of victor's justice emerging, but this starts to solidify this. Now, concretely, if we're going to talk about it literally now in terms of military necessity, the obvious point is that essentially you you can just target places that civilians are in if it's understood as a as a militarily necessary target. Like, this is just a fact, right? And in a way, it's hard to pick up a, a more concrete example than the, just the basic thing that knowing that civilians will be in an area and that they will die is fine. Like, you can do this. You can even do this with targets which are ostensibly civilian targets if they serve a military function, right? And so in that case, the military necessity overwhelms. The point is then that the way that you're meant to temper that is with this idea of proportionality. But again, you cannot weigh up the value of human life with, with military necessity, the incommensurate values. So the real question is just, could you kill less people? But the basic idea that what dictates what happens is military necessity is, is overwhelming. The point is, I think this is the crucial point to understand the standard could get higher but in principle there's nothing you couldn't bomb like and this is means this this is the 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 necessity point writ large and the argument would go something like oh but if you said you couldn't bomb a school then all that they would do is have their military headquarters in a school that's bad right but that is the triumph of military necessity as the first question you ask is like okay is it necessary and then you have to like calculate what that means, but it's military necessity which is calling the shots. Tell us more about um, how these rules of war come into being in the first place. I'd love a bit of a um, historical grounding so we could uh, really get our teeth into um, yes, how these negotiations play out and perhaps how that has changed given the changing uh, nature of warfare in the 21st century. Essentially, what you get in the wake of various wars from, let's say, the 1800s onwards is conferences between European powers where they agree to kind of like articulate some limits, arguably like kind of articulated around ideas of, of chivalry or whatever, about how it is that they can regulate war. Now, it's really crucial, again, to understand that in this context, and there's a very excellent article on this called um, International Law and Legit Legitimation of Violence, which I would recommend people seek out. But like, essentially, this was very commonly structured around ideas of military efficiency and military necessity. So these were not necessary humanitarian negotiations as such. It was often just like, 
well, do you need to kill this many people to do this thing? So a lot of the stuff leading up to the Hague conferences and, and the kind of banning of particular weapons are all about basically internal European conferences, usually in the wake of, of some kind of war, where they try and rein stuff in. So this is one of the things that ends up kind of regulating indiscriminate gases, dum-dum bullets, things, things like this. So what you have up until the, the foundation of the United Nations is essentially, this is what is is going on. Like European powers are discussing amongst themselves ways in which war can be limited, not in the sense of like saving lives, but in the sense of being efficient and like only taking targets of, of military necessity. And you can see the degree to which, like how effective that was in the context of the Second World War, right? Which is incredibly destructive to civilian populations and civilian lives on all parts of, of, of the scale on every single side. But often was justified in, in these terms of, of, of military necessity. Now, what you have with the end of the Second World War and a kind of broader humanitarian sense like coming in, but also crucially with the non-European world engaging in forms of often non-international armed conflicts, so like conflict like anti-colonial revolutions, is a sustained force which starts to challenge some of this in various ways. Mm -hmm. And particularly at the high points of the third world movement, you see inroads to a point, right, which carve out special spaces and exceptions for the kind of fighting of colonialism, for guerrilla warfare and things like this, which negotiate it to a degree, but within the overall architecture of this kind of language of military necessity, and military efficiency, that obviously also quite rapidly comes to an end in the context of um, the, the, the basic like death of the third world movement and the birth of neoliberalism. So essentially what you see then is this beginning set of negotiations between civilized European powers in which essentially what they're trying to uphold is ideas of necessity and which do not really pay any attention to non-European populations, which is, you know, it, it co-evolves with like, European internal wars and European colonial wars. You get the kind of period in the kind of 1960s and 1970s where this is challenged and where there are some gains made around like non-uniform fighters getting states of prisons of war, kind of like guerrilla movement stuff going on. And that still exists to a degree, but it's much less significant and strong now because you do not have those kind of insurgent movements backing it. And it continues to remain with an overarching set of legal justifications, which are um, trash, essentially, <laughs> as we can talk about a little bit later, but which which are very, that have problems actually in really holding back, restraining and limiting military violence. So when it comes to defining um, non-legitimate forms of violence um, within the context of war, either war crimes or illegal wars um, in wholesale, um, is how far does that get us? How far do these frameworks get us in terms of um, understanding what's going on on the ground um, and you know, how suitable are they, how flexible are they maybe for um, thinking about um, like sort of colonial wars, wars in terms of an occupying force on an occupied people. According to the United Nations Charter, which is like understood as being like the law on this, under Article 2.4, I won't do too many articles, like basically states are all meant to be protected from the use of military force. It's, it's understood as a pretty absolute prohibition. There are two exceptions to that. One of them is self-defense. And one of them is the United Nations collective security regime, whereby the Security Council can authorize the use of military force insofar as there's a threat to international 
peace and security. What states will frequently do and have frequently done is look at those exceptions, not as like narrow exceptions, but almost as like permissions and forms of argument that they can use to legitimate and articulate their uses of military force. Since 9-11, the US pioneered a set of arguments which responding to threats of terrorism and terrorist attacks, the US argued that it had a wide remit to act in self-defense, both inside the territories of other sovereign borders, based upon the idea that it was like, well, we're attacking these terrorists directly, and often in incipient terms, because it's like, well, we're not gonna wait for a threat to materialize. Importantly and interestingly, the entire legal architecture of the war on terror basically comes from the Israeli state. This were, these were arguments that Israel pioneers in its targeted assassinations of members of like Palestine or Palestinian organizations before the war on terror even happens. They develop this legal technology, which in the context of 9-11, the US generalized and combined with the drone program. Although again, of course, the Israeli state was one of the first states to like significantly use drones in this way. And this became the architecture of the US's projection of military force for most of the 20 years following that. And in some sense, you can see what's happening here as that being radicalized and like even further deepened by the Israeli state to be like, well, we're responding to this going on. The point about this is it's very difficult, I think, to mobilize people around the idea of, of a legal war in a way that will actually be politically sustainable, effective, and gets us where we would want to go. Mm -hmm. We often look to Iraq, and Iraq is kind of a weird black swan moment because like, there was a degree of rhetoric from the United States, which actually didn't even match the United States' own legal arguments, but about we don't care about international law, and a kind of expert consensus on the idea that like this is this is illegal, which could give it a bit of a detonating force. But mostly that doesn't obtain. If you look what's happening right now in Gaza, you can find legal experts, ten a penny, saying one thing or the other thing about whether or not the Israeli state is entitled to use military force. Many have argued now that because, and this follows an ICJ judgment advisory opinion in 2004 on the, the construction of the, the kind of wall in the occupied territories, that Israel can't be using acting in self-defense because it's an occupying power, which means it's not being attacked by like another state and therefore it can't use military force. The thing is, many people also disagree with that argument. It's, yeah. it's a contested argument. And so its ability to move things politically, I think, is, is difficult to hold out. And that's also because, importantly, for good or for ill, mostly for ill, international law tends to prioritize the continued existence of states and is very wary about saying, like, oh, you can't use self-defense here. There's a very famous ICJ advisory opinion on the use of nuclear weapons where they basically go, well, it looks like nuclear weapons probably would like violate every single rule of the laws of war, but we can't say you couldn't use them because if a state feels like its existence is threatened, who are we to say what they can do to stop that? When you get to that point, it becomes very difficult. So the problem with the language of illegal war in this context, I think, is that unless you have a very unified like set of positions around it, you are going to end up mired into a kind of techn tech like technocratic, legalistic debate where you surrender power to experts and where, to be honest, you are already arguing in terms which politically we wouldn't argue about. Like, in a sense, 
people on the left, I would imagine, would have a broader understanding of self-defense if you want to do it that way, which is not this legalistic idea of like who struck the first blow in this moment, but would be based on social relations, social position, things about exploitation, positions in relation to like oppressed and oppressors, which cannot be captured by this language. And very often when these things momentarily overlap, it's difficult to sustain the kind of political arguments you want. That's the problem, I think, at least on some level with thinking about illegal wars. Mm -hmm. In terms of then the use in bellow or the way in which that regulates the use of, of, of the particular use of military force. So we're talking war crimes war here, crimes. Yes, yes or no? Yeah, exactly. That again is an incredibly difficult thing to like, not just prove, but argue. So I'll give you, we've already talked about like this idea of distinction, right? And like the way that that in some senses like solidifies mm -hmm. um, kind of technological advantages. When it comes to proportionality, um, people are often like, oh, well, proportionality could be very useful. How can you kill this many civilians um, and it be okay? But proportionality is meant to measure like the relationship between civilian deaths and military necessity. Those two things are incommensurable values. Like they're not values that can be weighed up against each other. So in fact, in practice, what proportionality means, as most proportionality tests mean, is like, could you have killed less people to achieve the same outcome? That's a very difficult thing to argue. It also gets people on the left into very weird territory where it's like, well, how many deaths do we think is acceptable for this thing to happen? Right, like, you know, how many um, Palestinian children would be proportionally murdered in this context is like a very weird cul-de-sac, yeah. morally and politically. Yeah, exactly. And it, but it's also forcing us into a, a terrain, the terrain of military necessity, which we would have already contested because we will be like, no, 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 no. I don't care if the Israeli state has this objective that it thinks is legitimate in this context, because I'm operating in a different political universe to this language. So you are forced into that terrain in a way that is a problem, and again gets into these very like complicated arguments. And it's really important to say, the Israeli state has a very sophisticated, in many respects, legal and international legal apparatus for the use of justifying and, and like shaping its military force. It really, it really does. So for instance, the Israeli state does things which we will often think are laughable. For instance, one thing that it will do before bombings is robocalls, where it automatically calls people in a certain area and says, an attack is incoming, get out. Or it drops non-explosive weaponries onto people's houses. Now, these seem like cruel jokes, but what they are designed to do in the legal arena is become a justification for taking precautions with civilians. It's to say, well, actually, these people were warned, we were finding ways of minimizing collateral damage. And this kind of thing is quite a common feature across many of the imperial deployments of military force, not just um, Israel. It's also very common in the context of the United States and in the war on terror, which is designed essentially to, if you like, obfuscate the, this kind of legal discussion and make it much less clear what will happen. It's also important to say in this context, it's not that likely that if when things reach a court, a court is going to say it's going to substitute itself for a military commander and say, ooh, I think you could have done it this way. Like, often in these kind of contexts, courts will be like, well, insofar as we're talking about military necessity, will be quite like touch. The same thing is true of, of the targeting stuff. And I think this is a very important thing for us to understand, which is that, look, 
we often think of protected civilian objects as being like, well, you, you can't bomb them. But international humanitarian law, again, based on this kind of logic of military efficiency, says, yes, these objects are protected unless they are in some way used to aid the military like effort of your opponents. So even like with hospitals, it's like, are hospitals being used to engage in acts that are harmful is the language that gets used. That's the reason why the Israeli state ends up doing these borderline comedy videos of being like, oh, here are some guns underneath this hospital, because the Israeli state is operating within the parameters and purview of, of the international legal argument in order to cast these targets as, in some sense, dual-use targets, and therefore legitimate. Now, the thing is, what's crucial about this is this isn't just a kind of like horrible thing the Israeli state does. This is also built into the idea of how it is that the laws of war and international humanitarian law develop, right? Because if you're talking about a dense urban context in which you are facing a non-traditional military or resistance, i.e. if you're facing a kind of non-European power... Right, it's not just like France and Britain um, with kind of comparable weapons and identifiable uniforms all on like a nice tidy field and everyone who is there is already fighting, right? This is very, very different terrain. Yeah, exactly. That makes it in those situations incredibly plausible to continually be like, this is a dual use thing. There are some tunnels here. Because of course, if you are in a dense urban area in which there is like not a standing military, because like standing militaries are the property of like powerful states, it becomes very plausible to make these kind of legal arguments. And they're at least obfuscated enough to make them unclear. That doesn't mean, I don't think, by the way, that we cannot and should not say, this is nonsense, this is not what this is. And we can even use a kind of moral rhetoric of raw crimes if that's what we want to do. But I think we need to be aware in that context of the limits of the legal language in this way and the unlikely, the kind of unlikely idea that, the, that there will be legal redress for many of these things. And I think that's really crucial. It's also important to say that, like, again, once again, like, what the Israeli state is doing here is what many states do, usually in a less exaggerated fashion, in the context of the use of military violence. Like, a lot of what's happening in the context of Gaza happened in the context of Iraq and in the context of the invasion of Afghanistan because this is an imperial legal toolkit, if you like. And so we need to think on the ground carefully about how we invoke that and what we do with that. Again, it doesn't mean not condemning these atrocities for what they are, but it means having a healthy skepticism about what the legal framing can do, and also understanding that slipping into that language is very often slipping into a language where it's easier to lose, right? Like, we don't want to have to go and prove how many dead children is legitimate. We also don't want to be like, oh, because some people like were wounded and sheltering here who had carried arms at some point, like then it became a legitimate target. Like it's it, the language that you are forced to adopt and the reasoning you need to adopt in this way is quite antithetical to a kind of radical transformative politics. I'd love to know what you think about how um, Israel um, treats and talks about Hamas as a, a sort of specific kind of political and social force. It seems like it's kind of wants to have its cake and eat it in terms of whether or not it wants to define Hamas as a state force that is um, capable of certain kinds of um, organized violence that it needs to prove that it's capable of in order to justify this form of response, but also deny statehood, of course, and also deny that it 
uh, is a kind of a kind of state that is capable of coming to the negotiation table, for instance. And it all gets you know, very, very muddy. And um, also, um, I guess how that relates to this idea of the combined target, right? Like if you have the idea that you know Hamas is everywhere, seeded throughout Gaza, and is somehow incapable of any kind of like rational thought or rational behavior, then what does a hospital mean in sustaining the life of, you know, that state in abstract? That's a really, a really great question. And before tackling it head on, I just want to do like, I think two useful historical examples, which kind of give you the sense of the, the precedent of this. So the first thing is we talked earlier about like international law, civilization and the kind of colonial period. And one thing that you said is like, oh, they were making treaties of all of these people, right? And in a sense, at that historical moment in like the 1800s, this was like a weird thing because it was like, so you, how are you denying people legal subjectivity, mm-hmm. but also making a treat with them so they can give up their land, right? And what that meant in that particular period was this language of civilization was never that clear cut because at the, it, at the end of the day, it was there and linked with these specific concrete things. And so there were always these categories of semi-civilized, et cetera, et cetera. This is a very, it's a very long standing mm-hmm. imperial practice to have an ambivalent cast to the people that you are fighting against in what particular way. Mm-hmm. You give them just enough sovereignty for them to be able to screw themselves over, essentially. And that has a, that has a long kind of storied history in the history of international law. I think it's important to say in this sense, the Israeli state is reproducing that long-standing imperial practice. And it's in some ways, it's not, not new. But the other thing then in a, in a kind of interlinked way with this is this is also in a way a significant and sustained thing about the logic of the war on terror again, which again always had this kind of ambiguity about who you were attacking, how or not, how organized they were, where you could target them. Like in the context of something like, again, Afghanistan and the status initially of Al-Qaeda and its relationship, to, to, there was a lot of work done trying to work out like, well, is the Taliban responsible? Is it not? How does this relate? What's the status of, of, of them in that kind of way? So these fudges, in some sense, are built into like a lot of the imperial structure and invocation of international law. The next point, which I think is really important to say, is this idea of people being everywhere and nowhere, of like the the the, the terrorist individual like and, and Hamas as being everywhere, is in some sense precisely one which fits with this problem of, of the dual-use target. Because if they're everywhere, then of course everything is a potential target. And then also the next thing with that is to then reverse the logic of responsibility. Because of course... The other thing that it says essentially is like, it's the human shield argument. It's like, well, actually, the reason this is happening is because of a moral and legal failing on the behalf of this non-traditional actor, Hamas. They have the problem because they are deliberately doing this in order to have human shields. So this is a crucial dimension, again, of the Israeli state's attempt to like obfuscate things. One of the things that I find very funny about this negotiation language is the Israeli state <laughs> is publicly being like, yeah, so our plan is to like entirely eradicate Hamas. And then it's like, why are they not coming to the negotiating table properly? It's like, <laughs> you, you want to negotiate with somebody, you're like, we'll give you six weeks and then we're going to kill all of you. This doesn't seem like a good, honest opening starting point. Mm-hmm. This cannot be a feasible starting point for negotiations. We will annihilate you. And also you cannot annihilate like a governing party without annihilating everyone, which of course is what the Israeli state would like to do. Yes. Um, but to put that point, Palestine did its statehood bid in like 2012. 
I think, and it was it was like partially successful in lots of ways. Like it's was it a non-member observer state of the United Nations? Mm-hmm. Like it has it signed up to the International Criminal Court. That was part of the goal. So there is this kind of anomalous and ambivalent status of of Palestine as a state. And I think it's really important to say that in some ways that 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 kind of like geez, that liminal state, sorry, is in some sense useful for the Israeli state actually because it can char- it can work out how to characterize like Palestine in different contexts and different ways for whatever it wants to do. It's quite clear that the Israeli state has taken steps and wants to take steps to be like we're not occupying. What they want to do is everything that I means they are, but they're doing everything up to occupying to occupy essentially because it's a central argument for the Israeli state especially following the 2004 like wall judgment to be like no no we're not occupying we, the, we sorry the 2004 out. wall judgment so i did i did mention it earlier but there was, it, it's the judgment from the icj it's the advisory opinion about the construction of the apartheid wall or the wall like in the occupied territories and one of the things that the international court of justice says there is oh well actually since israel is an occupying power it cannot be acting in self-defense against people here because like they're not another state attacking them. They're in your territory. And the Israeli state, and again, we can say that this is nonsense, but has taken loads of steps to try and be like, well, we're not occupying anymore. Like There was the pullout under Sharon from Gaza to be like, we're not an occupying power now. And again, leaving the status of what Palestine is ambivalent enough, mm. but but crucially trying to say, no, 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 it's we're not occupying anymore. Which I think is a really important thing about the point about this status and what the Israeli state does with it is it's deliberately left to be anonymous, ambivalent, liminal, because that allows the Israeli state to mount a whole bunch of different legal arguments at different moments about what it wants to do with that with that territory. But look, the final thing I'll say, and this is more of a kind of, I guess, theoretical point, but I think it's worth making is the dual image of like the savage as both organized and threatening and also pathetic and useless is a thing that has essentially characterized European and American imperialism throughout its existence. Like this particular like duality, which enables both violence, but also intervention, but also a a, a faux humanitarianism is the key motif of how imperial power has worked. And it has fed itself into law continuously in various ways. And in some sense, as I say, this is the Israeli state recapitulating that logic, but in a particularly concentrated, heightened and extreme way. I want to get to the sort of meat and potatoes of the ICJ judgment very soon, but I'd like to take a little bit of a detour via something you mentioned just then, um, this idea of uh, false humanitarianism. And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on how um, the language of humanitarianism um plays into the kind of the construction of what isn't isn't legitimate violence is one of these kind of interesting and horrifying simultaneously points that is uh, produced um, by the kind of absurdities of some kind of political gestures uh, going on at the moment saying like, oh no, of course we're not going to uh, support a ceasefire, but uh, you know, you can have some humanitarian aid, of course, a humanitarian pause, if you like. I mean, so I think in general, we should shy away from the language of humanitarianism for various point for various reasons, right? Like, let's obviously just initially say that Makamatua in this kind of like famous international law article called Savages, Victims, and Saviors, and he's talking about humanitarian intervention. And essentially he says, well, look, the logic of humanitarianism is often based around this kind of metaphor, 
whereby it casts like non-Europeans as like savages who are basically terrorizing very often their own population they're bringing on themselves. It casts um, the the rest of the mass of the population as victims, people without agency, people without politics, people who like essentially exist to be saved and intervened in. And then saviors, which are the people that come in mm. like to save, right? And what that is, is as a structure is a structure of legitimating various forms of intervention by the saviors into like against the savages to rescue <laughs> the victims, right? And that frequently obfuscates the already existing forms of involvement of those states in the area. So if we take, for example, this, this language of humanitarianism, for many of these states to be saying this is almost a way of ignoring the degree to which they are contributing to the issues in the first place. So it's like, well, you know, rather than humanitarian aid, why don't you withdraw aid and military aid and support for the Israeli state? Like the most humanitarian thing that you could do is that. But casting it as a humanitarian crisis in that sense, like depoliticizes and kind of moves that away by ignoring what is going on there and instead just casts whoever as the kind of provisioners of humanitarian aid. Indeed, right, this is a thing that the Israeli state itself likes to do. Like it likes to point out the humanitarian aid it is giving as if there's like a magical balance sheet that means like, oh, well, they've let in this many trucks. So actually it must be good. And it's a way of obfuscating the broader context, I think, of the war and what is going on. Now, obviously, I honestly think that in some ways in, in the current context, it's not even that complicated. It's li This is literally just kind of have your cake and eat it way for states to take the minimum amount of condemnation without incurring any political costs to their relationship to the state of Israel to be like, well, we think that you need to have some aids coming in and we will keep entirely silent about this issue. Because I think this is the role that invoking a politics of humanitarianism frequently does, right? And what that allows states and state actors to do is like, politically position themselves in such a way as to be like looking all right whilst continuing to support the actual if you like humanitarian crisis which is the state of israel's like continued and deliberate attacks on like a defenseless population but if you think about it very frequently that language of humanitarianism it evokes a crisis it evokes things without agency it often evokes this sense oh it's a situation you need humanitarian aid without having to ask questions about well, what is the situation? Why is it this way? What is going on? A kind of important side effect of this, and I think a thing that even people who are very well-meaning need to think about, is the degree to which conducting that language of humanitarianism can be quite depoliticizing. It can rob Palestinians and other people of their agency, of their sense of being politically active people, and instead render them as kind of passive recipients of like aid, of help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to, let's say, a people struggling with whom you are in solidarity. I want to kind of focus in now on um, the specific, I guess, framework of um, genocide, right? A um, couple of questions. Um, one is, is how does this concept um, get articulated in the first place? And uh, the second is, it's a really difficult question right now, of course, um, because, you know, I have no hesitation in um, uh, calling what is happening genocidal, right? And particularly, you know, listening to what, say, Isaac Herzog or Netanyahu are saying and saying that that is genocidal language. That is absolutely someone who is out to wipe out people for, you know, increasingly um, transparent 
political economic aims, right? Um, but do we have, I guess, uh, reasons to to hold back maybe on on that framework, or you know, how do we how do we interact with that? The initial coining of the term genocide obviously occurs in the wake of the Second World War, referring specifically to the crimes of the Nazis in exterminating the Jewish people and the Holocaust and the extermination of other peoples as well. And it's coined by, I think, Lemkin specifically, like very famously, and he wants a crime to capture the specificity of this um, of this slaughter on the kind of scale that it was done. And it then cashes out in a definition, which is basically, it's a combination of a series of destructive measures with what's called a specific intent. So it's like, it's the idea that it's not just that you're killing a lot of people, it's that you're killing them with the intention of wiping them out as a people. So it's, you know, side killing, geno people, right? And that's why there are now like several other different sides that people want to like continually reference. So it comes out initially specifically understood in, in that context. And it's important to say that at various points, people have attempted to, um, to use that in different political ends. So very famously, although I can't remember the year now, like the, uh, a kind of coalition of civil rights people in the US attempt to charge the US with genocide in the we charge genocide thing of the US's treatment of like African-Americans. And they use this as a way of like drawing attention to like what they understand to be the US's hypocrisy and as a way of like highlighting what is going on. Now, in the context then of thinking about the, the framework, this is the language that has emerged and I can, I fully understand how and why it's emerged in the context of essentially like both the statements of, um, you know, the, the statements that have come out of the Israeli state and the level of indiscriminate, like, killing and slaughter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, like, one of the, the particular way in which the language of genocide in general operates, I think, at times, can be less than useful for us because it exceptionalizes acts of particular killing and, and cuts them off and, and puts them into this kind of specific intent framework. This often offers actors a kind of get out to be like, well, no, we weren't, we didn't specifically intend to do it. We intended to do X, Y, or Z instead, right? So for instance, very often people talk about colonial genocides, but then Often the genocidal thing was much more of a byproduct of what those states were doing than all, it was not always a deliberate attempt to wipe out people. Often it was just a studied indifference to them. So one of the broad, <laughs> broad not objections, but like things we might want to say about genocide as a concept is it ultimately has a kind of liberalism which imagines that the most important thing is intention as opposed to anything else. So for instance... I don't think that we would think absent the statements of the Israeli state and state actors about what is happening, mm. this would be any less bad, or in fact, in our minds, any less of something like a genocide, right? Mm. But the formal structure of a concept of genocide requires that kind of specificity of intent, which I act, and then marks that out as significant, which I actually think can sometimes be, it doesn't quite get at often how mass killing works in the modern world and why it's significant and what's a problem with it. The next thing to say, of course, is people can and should use 
like the cool the, the tools concepts and like things that are available to them to resist mm. their destruction right this is obvious but just i think worth stating for for those for those purposes but we can at, then at points be like we need to think about when we invoke a specific legal category like what effects that we want to have from it what do we think it will do and how is it that we mobilize around those categories and so in the context of something like thinking about genocide and the genocide convention we can obviously think about and should mobilize that language insofar as what we are dealing with is a system of like like a situation of like mass murder mass death but we also want to think about like tactically in what sense is it being invoked why and how so against the backdrop of that context, um, I would really like to hear your take on um, the South African case against Israel that's recently gone through um, the ICJ. And I would also uh, love you kind of just to start by giving us a sense of, okay, what is the ICJ? Who is it? And it's sometimes uh, contrasted with um, the ICC as, you know, the ICC is the, the bad colonial one and the ICJ is maybe the slightly better, less colonial one. Like, yeah, although I I do really feel like it being the slightly better, less colonial one just happened only in the context of this <laughs> of this <laughs> yeah, case. Tell us. I mean, actually, as we'll talk about in a second, like the ICC ICJ has its own kind of history of en- enmeshment in colonialism in in various kind of ways. Mm-hmm. So just to start with, then very quickly, the ICJ is basically the kind of principal judicial organ of the United Nations. It's one of the main organs of the United Nations. And everyone who's a member of the United Nations is also signed up to the ICJ. Um, The ICJ has jurisdiction over general questions of international law, but also over specific treaties, because many specific treaties will refer to the jurisdiction of the ICJ for disputes about them. So the Genocide Convention very explicitly has, uh, like Article 9 says, oh, well, any any disputes, refer them to the International Court of Justice. Um, The ICJ does a few things. It can issue advisory opinions if the General Assembly asks it for an advisory opinion, and that's the kind of non-binding sort of authoritative statement of what the ICJ believes the law to be. So the the wall case that we were talking about earlier from 2004, that's an advisory opinion. Uh, there's also an advisory opinion famously, as I mentioned earlier, on the legality of the use, use of nuclear weapons. Uh, the ICJ can also deal with contentious cases. So cases where like the states are kind of having a disagreement and can issue binding um, resolution. But in this case, states have to consent to that in order to have us. They have to explicitly and affirmatively consent to the jurisdiction of the ICJ. Now, the Security Council can also refer situations to the International Court of Justice, but that then comes back with this general um, problem of of the power of, of the veto. And the relationship between the Security Council and the ICJ has often been like a problematic thing. So, for instance, quite famously in the Nicaragua case, Nicaragua versus the USA, when the U.S. was supporting like right-wing death squads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the court found against you know, the the U.S. Whenever the Security Council went to kind of like say the U.S. should like pay what it was owed, the U.S. just vetoed it, and the U.S. just never had to live with the consequences of that. So that's the ICJ, and it deals with general international law. The ICC is a smaller, more specific body that has nothing to do with the United Nations. It's a multilateral treaty that basically sets up a permanent and compulsory court with jurisdiction 
over individuals from their states for kind of like war crimes, crimes against humanity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It has a smaller number of states involved in it. It deals very specifically with this area of the law and it, it deals with individuals committing international crimes, right? So that's the, the, the two of them. So in the context of the recent South Africa case, essentially South Africa, under the kind of auspices of the Genocide Convention, um, went to the ICJ and at least what's relevant for our purposes, was saying, look, the, the Israeli state is at the very least plausibly at risk of committing like genocidal acts um, and asked for provisional measures from the court to kind of stop the rights of the Palestinians from being prejudiced, essentially, and kind of curtail and hold back what the Israeli state was doing in forms of provisional measures. Um, the court accepted that it had jurisdiction over the issue and also said, look, there's a, a plausible case to answer here. Like it's it's a, it's a potential thing. And then essentially ordered that, and I don't have the exact judgment in front of me, but the Israeli state act to prevent genocidal acts from occurring and included here the kind of like, you know, killings of people involved, starvation, preventing of births, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it has these provisional measures. Um, for some, the provisional measures did not go as far as they would like, because the court did not call or call for the Israeli state to cease using any military force in Gaza. It instead said cease the potential of the genocidal acts. And for some, they've said, well, that is de facto calling for the Israeli state to, to stop the use of military force. Now, I think the thing, the way that we want to approach this judgment is uh, soberly, cynically, and um, with our with a sense of our own politics involved in it, so there there are mistakes here in two ways. One mistake is to imagine that this is like meaningless, did nothing. Why, 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 why? The other is to imagine that the world has been saved, and that's linked to a broader opening perspective of it, which is that I think for many people, in the context of what was a very hopeless situation many, many hopes projected onto the International Court of Justice as something which was going to like save the Palestinians. That was always unlikely, if only because the Israeli state was frequently just ignored kind of judgments of the International Court of Justice, like it ignored the advisory opinion on the construction of the wall, and it would be backed in doing so by kind of some of its more powerful allies. And indeed, one of the interesting things about the Israeli state, again, not interesting necessarily, but it's always had this kind of dual relationship where it both continually says it's abiding by international law, but denounces international institutions as anti-Semitic, as against Israel, as controlled by Israel's enemies. I think the important thing for us in this context to say is like, okay, what are some of the practical consequences of this and what were the realistic limits of what those consequences might be. I think that some people were hoping for slash expecting for something that was never going to happen, which was like this really significant thing from the ICJ, like fire and brimstone, like denouncing wholly the Israeli state and calling for an immediate cessation of hostilities. That was not going to happen. Like it's not the nature of international legal bodies in this sense, especially given the history that we have, have talked about. But on the other hand, like it's clear that things could have gone further. So the most important thing I think for thinking about what the judgment means in this context, I think the approach that we ought to be taking to like international law 
more broadly is like, does this change the terrain for the forms of struggle that we think might be more effective in calling things to a halt, right? And on that basis, we have to say, well, has the judgment and in what ways has the judgment made forms of organizing, forms of resistance better, more easy, more straightforward? And here there, I think, are a couple of things. Like, firstly, there are definitely some states where their courts are very empowered and very independent in relation to international law. And there is possibilities here that this will affect, like, um, you know, particular state practices. So I think just recently in the Netherlands, right, there was a thing about a, a, a Dutch court was like, well, actually, you won't be exporting these F-35s to the Israeli state because, you know, like this looks like it might be used in something which is provisionally or plausibly mm. a genocide. And so we, we might be breaching our obligations insofar as we do this, right? I think that's one thing. I do also think in the context of people who are working in, in different institutions and trying to like raise the issue of Palestine, this gives you gives people a further bit of leverage and ammunition. And it also gives more space to use like a critical language of the Israeli state because you can just be like, well, but the ICJ said it. So why is there a problem mm. with me, right? So there is a sense in which it opens up space to do broader things in, in that kind of way. Lots of people have really significantly and seriously talked about the symbolic value of this judgment. I'm a lot more skeptical mm. about that for a couple of reasons. The first reason I think is a very like vulgar reason, which some people disagree with, but I, I'm trying to pinpoint who I think is the person in the Venn diagram who has seen what's been happening so far and has been like, mm, might be okay. And then the moment this judgment came out, I was like, actually it's bad. So in terms of that delegitimizing effect, I'm uncertain. Now, the one of the reasons why I then think we ought to be careful with that is because crucially, like the International Court of Justice is, is not our friend necessarily, and indeed very frequently right. is not our friend. And it's very difficult insofar as you lean into a certain kind of language, which is like, oh my God, and they're disobeying international law and to row back from that when you need to row back from it. Because you are giving this body a degree of legitimacy, which it doesn't deserve, and indeed may be a problem. And thinking in the logic of the court is, is or can be, if you go too far into it, antithetical to the kind of politics that you want to have, which can win, which is thinking of the Palestinian people as political people engaged in a political struggle with whom we can have solidarity with with whom we can share perspectives with with whom we can disagree as well on different political issues and the logic of the way in which courts tend to construct things and in this case actually has the logic has been constructed removes that from people none of this is an argument against the case being taken because it made sense that it was and it, it achieved something but it is a kind of if you like plea for people especially on the left to think seriously about this. It's not a natural terrain for us to be on. In terms of the ICC, I mean, the ICC is like, admittedly, it's a comically bad body, which just is, only goes after Africans, essentially, and has a, a very like poor history in this way too. I think it's worth pointing out that one of the things that will definitely happen with the ICC and with the framing of it is that the ICC investigates situations and the first people that the ICC could go after very easily is like, 
Palestinians and Hamas because this is a very clear breach of like the stuff that we've been talking about. So it will, the problem, one of the big problems of the ICC is simply that it will be treating this situation in some ways as a kind of like almost symmetrical when it isn't. It will not have an understanding of the politics of the situation. Indeed, it, it cannot have that. And it has a significantly poor track record on any of this stuff. Now, I haven't seen too much hope being put in the ICC, which is which is good. Although in other contexts, I see that, that it is it is coming up. The ICC, in some ways, also almost offers like even less, even fewer practical kind of things for people to like to do with this. Like it essentially might offer people the power to citizens arrest people, but it's not going to even have the same kind of broader consequences that we're thinking about in this way. We don't dismiss what's happening out of hand. We should appreciate what is positive about it and understand what we can do with it. But equally, a kind of deification of the courts, a kind of overinvestment in hope, and a failure to subject its history and its place to the kind of analysis we would do other stuff is a real risk in the context where you feel helpless. And politically, I think, would be very damaging. When it comes to um, how we invest our hope, or rather where we invest our hope, um, I'd love to get some final um, thoughts on, um, I guess, kind of what now, right? We've we've seen maybe um, what we can understand as uh, the sort of staging of both the possibilities and the limits of this kind of like juridical approach. And we've also seen um, how maybe limited the enforcement mechanisms are. So, okay, is the, is the enforcement mechanism uh, you, me and the gals uh, in a picket line? Like how do we interact with, how do we mobilize around these um, sort of juridical moments? Well, the first thing I would say is like, if we're on a picket line and we win, I hope we win more than just that. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think one, but I think this is important because like one of the pro- one of the problems is like, and again, this is this is a, a, a danger when I want us to go and say these things should never be like our horizons or our limits or what we mobilize around because at best these are always incredibly partial, incomplete victories which will legitimize something that we don't want to legitimize and are conducting this broader language. So, in a sense, right. We should not think of ourselves as enforcement mechanisms. We should think of what has been provided for us as some avenues and some ways that we can use tactically, but we are not the enforcement mechanism. There isn't one. Like It is just a thing that we can engage with in the, the pursuit of the broader thing that we're trying to do, right? I think a crucial like first step in all of these things is, and I'm not saying that anyone does this consciously, but we can't like substitute courts for like political action. Like, And there's a tendency, there's a temptation constantly to do it. I experienced it myself at various points. And it's a natural kind of like temptation because it seems to short circuit stuff. And it's very consonant with like, you know, the world in which we live. Like, I, I think in some ways law is like the spontaneous politics under capitalism. It's like, it's what we do because it's just so useful. And then we, we see this across the board, right? Like at work, if we have a bad situation at work, the first thing we'll think about is like, but labor law can fix that, can't it? We won't be like, we eventually might be like, I'll go on strike then. But even our union will probably first be like, okay, well, we'll talk to the lawyer, right? So this is not just in this arena, it's 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 everywhere. One of the problems sometimes with law is that it presents itself as this rarefied language which is cut off from people and it makes it harder to make collective political decisions because lawyers can come and be like, but I know what we're doing here and da 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 da. And I think that's antithetical to the kind of politics that we that we want to do. Like the starting point for us thinking about like Palestine or anywhere else is to be like, okay, well, Palestine isn't just like 
a kind of magical place of horrors. It's also like a place that has a political economy. It has like different social forces, different social relations. The Israeli state is driven by these as well. So a starting point for thinking about political action, and this is going, this goes against legalistic framing, is to be like, well, what is the situation here? Like, what is the nature of the Israeli state? What is its project? What is it doing? Also, what is the nature of like Palestinian society, class relations, different political alignments? So one of the first most important things I think to do, which is not like an excuse for like sitting down and just writing articles or something, but is, is the thinking is like to understand the situation like concretely as it exists and not to treat it as this kind of like special magical place. And part of the point about that is to understand, well, what are the pressure points on the Israeli state? What are the motivations for what it's doing? What kind of mobilizations can make a difference? And crucially, what forms of solidarity with like Palestinian political organizations and people engaged in political struggle can we take and make? We know that the the, the Israeli state is supported in the international arena by certain like key states and exerting pressure on them, like real material pressure in relation to the Israeli state is one thing that you can think about doing, right? We know that we can take forms of direct action in terms of trying to like cut off and like weaken the Israeli state's like material kind of benefits. But I think we need to be realistic about the limits of what can happen with that. I don't think that, I don't think that you know, a magical strike will just cure everything. But we can think about what kind of organizing we do in in that kind of context, which again cuts off kind of supply to the Israeli state and also like delegitimizes it. If we're thinking, let's say, about you know the kind of anti-BDS bills like going through parliament, well, it's like okay, well, how does that now work in the context where it's like, well, but an international body is now saying there's a potential for genocide, and what you're saying is that we're not allowed to like base like is that good? Yeah, we're not allowed to not buy hummus to prevent a potential yeah. genocide, right? So we can mobilize that legal stuff as part of as a, a subordinate to what our political struggles are with those political struggles based on our understanding of the situation. I think it is simply to say that you cannot place and should not place all of or even much of your hope in the ability of these juridical structures to do anything, but to think about how we can make use of them in ways that don't recapitulate their logic and legitimate them. Rob, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.